are listening to Punk Theology. <laughs> Fuck. Hello everybody, this is Derek with the Punk Theology Podcast. Clearly I'm still working on my radio voice and I suck at it, which is why we have Russ to give us nice intros. But this week Russ is not here, it's just me. I'm doing my first one-on-one interview with a good friend of mine. His name is John Bissell. John and I used to work together and we always had really good conversations. Uh, John is an atheist, but despite that fact, him and I have always got along really, really well. We both tend to approach the world from similar viewpoints, even though I identify as a Christian and he identifies as an atheist. Today we are talking about laws and legalism and why laws are necessary, but also why laws tend to fail us if we put too much confidence in them. So today we're going to talk to you about how laws affect you from a philosophical standpoint, but also a practical standpoint. John and I both work in land development, where we have to work with lots of laws and lots of municipal codes. You will notice, however, that in the first 10 minutes or so, we start to talk a little bit too much in technical terms. Uh, This works itself out later in that we start to talk about the philosophy of this and, and explain some of those technical terms. So if you find yourself a little bit confused at the beginning of this podcast, please stick with it. It does get better. So without further ado, please sit back and enjoy my interview with John Bissell. Hi everybody, this is Derek with the Punk Theology Podcast. We're going to do something a little bit different today. Uh, I have a friend with me here, uh, John Bissell, who's different than the John who's also on our podcast. Uh, John and I used to work together, uh, and since then have maintained a friendship. We both tend to see the world similarly, even though we end up uh, in different places sometimes uh, in terms of what we actually believe. But in terms of what rational... Um, pragmatists, rational pragmatism. I think both of us tend to approach the world from that perspective. Um, And we haven't exactly decided what we're going to talk about today, but every time we talk, there's always lots of interesting things that come up. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll start there. So one thing that we had talked about talking about before we we got in here was the concept of laws and legality. And it's actually a rather unfortunate thing in our culture that we get almost zero schooling on how laws work. Mm-hmm. And every time I'm dealing with legal issues, nobody is ever satisfied with where they are legally, and they have one of two complaints. The first complaint tends to be that the law is not nuanced enough to take care of my specific problem. I should be the exception to this law because my case is different than all these other ones, and this is my reasoning behind thinking that I'm in the right here and that the law is in the wrong. The contrary problem that people have is they say the law is too complicated. They say there's too much in it for me as a layperson to understand what's going into it. Uh, and, I, and so I can't use it properly because I don't even know what the laws are. And I have to hire somebody that you know for $500 an hour to tell me what the law is. And the problem is those two uh, issues are contrary to each other. It is extremely difficult to write a law that is nuanced and takes lots of exceptions into account 
and make it simple. Those things just cannot seem to occur at the same time. So we're stuck on this infinite sliding scale where nobody's ever really happy about where they are legally. Uh, and there's not really anything to be done about it. And this comes down to kind of the point of this podcast is that law is necessary and 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 really is a is something that has to happen in a civilization. Some form of law. The anarchists would disagree, but they've never been able to prove otherwise. Um, but it's fundamentally broken. And to put too much trust and too much value and too much stake uh, into the law usually is a mistake for that reason. Uh, it will either be too expensive for you to manage or very expensive for you to manage because it is complicated or it will not take your personal exceptions and exemptions into account because it's too broad. Yeah, can I speak to that? Um, if a law cannot be understood by a man or woman of common intelligence, then it fails in due process. At the same time, um, uh, stormwater, for instance, is very complicated. Right. Uh, how, what happens on your property and where it goes um, is an issue. I, I started my career in zoning code enforcement. And I remember I was in the mountains of the Sierra Nevada. I had had a complaint that somebody was operating an illegal quarry and they were blasting rock and that that people in the subdivision over the hill were, you know, their windows were shaking and, they, you know, that kind of stuff. So I go out to the site and sure enough, there is an illegal quarry going on there. You know, full operation. Yes, they're blasting. Yes, they're doing all of that stuff. Um, and there's a stream going right through the middle of it as well. Um, there had been complaints that uh, the trucks were overloaded and rocks were coming off the trucks and endangering cars on the highway. I mean, just such a broad section of complaints. Anyway, I show up on the property and um, and somebody brings in the landowner who was, you know, looked like he was about 140 years old, blind, mm -hmm. cowboy hat, cowboy boots. You know, he comes in all blustery. What the hell's going on here? And I explain what's going on. And here, you know, I was... 24 years old or something. I mean, I was a beginner in my career. And, uh, and I explained what's going on. He says, what about my property rights? I've had this property in my family for five generations. And I said, yeah, I get your property rights are a concern. There's also the property rights of the guys who live over there and are having their windows broken by your blasting. But, and you might say, you know, those are newcomers, right? But there's a property rights that the guys grazing cattle downstream. You're polluting the stream. No piece of property has ever been a castle, as people like to say. You go back to common law, and you're a knight in a castle somewhere in England, and you're screwing up something for a knight in another castle over there. There was a problem. They, you know, there were there were laws against that in medieval times, in feudal times. So, how do you solve this problem and not make it complex when you've got stormwater going off on properties and running down on other people's property and causing erosion or pollution or polluting the Puget Sound? It's very, very complicated. So there's a temptation to write laws that are incredibly complicated to try and solve these problems, and yet there's the constitutional requirement that we have to be able to read it and understand it. And I don't know that there's a good solution. If you look at it with kind of a, a broad, uh, you know, uneducated black or white perspective it seems like it should be pretty easy which most people do mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I tend to go back to the libertarian motto of uh, you can swing your fist as much as you want as long as it doesn't hit my nose right? right. right. Um, I like that uh, the problem is 
you could argue it always hit somebody's nose. Right. It, and it may not hit it very hard, but added up over time, you know, little micro punches to the nose add up a lot over time. That really is true for lots and lots of the things that we deal with legally, mm-hmm. where when you at first blush looking at it, it looks like, oh yeah, like, like we should just take the libertarian approach. You should totally be able to do this as long as you're not hurting anybody else. Mm-hmm. But the trick comes, uh, what screen do you do you filter? You know, is this hurting somebody else? Through? Right. As you get finer and finer and finer, all of a sudden, all these things that well, that actually might be hurting somebody else. Should we stop them? Should we not stop them? Uh, that's where, yeah, the, the tricky nuance of trying to make a law uh, really gets difficult. Um, and it's, so I deal with this all the time. It's really funny. I do site visits to people that have upstream neighbors that are just dumping tons of water into their property. It's causing erosion. They have channelization through the middle of their property. Um, And they're just furious, right? Just so mad at these upstream neighbors for doing this. Why is that allowed? Why won't the county or the jurisdiction step in and stop them? And then not five minutes later, we'll start talking about solutions. And the ones that they're set on are collecting all the water and shooting it into their downstream neighbor. Like, Like, they don't even hesitate. That's the first, like, I start talking to them about things that they could do to fix it, and always the cheapest option is to collect it all and shoot it on their neighbor's property, and 95% of the time, that's the thing that they fixate on. So it's just this this amazing hypocrisy uh, of human, and that's just the human condition. I'm furious that this other person is affecting me. How am I going to fix it? Oh, I'm just going to pass it down the line. The next person can handle it. And, and the ability for the human mind to justify that type of action is why we need the laws to begin with, right? That say, no, you can't just you can't just do that. But guaranteed, nobody will like the law. Like that's yeah, and the law will be unfair. Like there's just not a way to write it and to implement not only write it but implement it in a way that will be nuanced enough to help everybody. Uh, so where does that leave us, right? Can can we learn to be content with something that's necessary but ugly? And, and and how does that, you know, so and I think that's where it ties into the rest of this, you know, idea of punk theology is how many things in our lives do we have to look at and realize that is never going to be perfect. That's always going to be ugly. And can I pursue a path of growth in that and not settle or not get cynical and not get, you know, uh, nihilistic about it and say, you know, screw all this. I'm just not participating. Still still pursuing a path of growth and a path of health, but not being so frustrated with the point that it isn't perfect and it will never be perfect that you kill the entire process or you kill yourself trying to pursue something that can never actually functionally happen. Uh, and it's a very difficult thing for humans to do is to find that line and live in a land of nuance where there is no perfect, but, but I still choose to strive for better. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that's a whole lot to chew on right. right there. So the reason capitalism fails is because it depends in large part on um, people being good. Right. The reason socialism fails is it depends in large part on people not having lust for power. Right. Um, and. I, I always find it interesting when hardcore capitalists talk about all the failings of socialism that, because you have to put these serious blinders on 
right. to not see the same problems really as well. similar failings with capitalism. They they fail in different ways, right? But it's similar problems. They're both broken similarly. Yeah, right. Um, they 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 just make a dependence. Oh, this this thing will be okay because people are good, right? We all know people aren't good. Well, so this is something else that I engage with. Uh, on any issue, 90% of the people are good and 10% are bad. And the 10% ruin it for everybody else. So, And it's not always the same people that are bad on the 10%. Some people are really good in every other situation in life, but they have one thing where they're just the bad egg and they ruin it for everybody else. And you can never depend on one topic being open or one issue being open for abuse and assume that nobody's going to take uh, take advantage of that abuse. There's always a small minority that will will take advantage of that every single time. Are, are you familiar with College Humor? Yes. Now, they did a, a, an animated thing once a few years ago entitled Everyone's an Asshole. Uh-huh. Have you seen this? Uh-huh. Um, I agree, though. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, you know, part of it is is looking at it from the perspective of the guy who is so mad that why is that person an asshole or why is that person and then they kind of they kind of go down the line and it comes back around to the guy pointing the fingers. who who was pointing the fingers at everybody else and uh, turns out you are too <laughs> and um so that's why we have to have laws right um, account for these people and, and who always exist and then you get to the to the small percent. Well, okay. So if you don't have laws, and we all rely on our own idea of morality and goodwill and and so on, it's going to be really variable what that idea is. Even amongst really good, generous people, it's going to be and variable. Different. It could vary within them within a day. Sure, they absolutely. might be able to way, find a way to justify behavior they would never do if put in the right situation. So it's not solid with that one person. Even. Right. It's incredibly variable within that individual person. Right. And um, some of being good and, and um, recognizing how to be good is dependent on a large amount of empathy. Right. And um, Some people just don't have that. Well, I think most people don't have a large amount of empathy. Right. You know, I I ride a bicycle for fun. And um, I get to see people driving their cars who have absolutely no idea what their impact to me is. Right. And they're furious that I've delayed them for three seconds. And so they endanger my life. Is my life only worth your three seconds? Right. And this ridiculous. And and if you were able to take a step back out of that subconscious freak out that they're having that endangers my life because of the three seconds, um, and get them to understand that and be empathetical to that, they probably wouldn't do that. But I can't stop them on the road and say, "Hey, let's have a lesson in empathy right now." Right. You know, they're out of their minds, um, and they're delayed. It it can't happen. And so we have laws and and. And and so in cycling in many states, there's a law that says you got to give at least three feet. And if I'm in the lane and there's no shoulder, you have to go to the other lane like I'm any other vehicle. You know, right. things like we have laws that say how to do this. Because I can't depend on you having empathy enough to not kill me. Right. And, and, and that's really an important thing. Killing somebody is one of those things in any society we're, we're really supposed to avoid. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter which 
tribal group or religious group or any everybody says hey try not to kill people or at least your own people yeah right don't kill your own people don't kill the people that you're supposed to have empathy for that we've dictated with this culture but, that but you're in a big giant Mexican. armored oh, armored metal thing and I'm sitting out here in Lycra and you don't know anything about what it's like to sit out here in, in Lycra so you don't have I, maybe I'm in your same tribe. Maybe when I drive a car, I even drive the same model car you have, maybe. I'm in your tribe. And yet, you don't see that I'm in your tribe, and you're unable to have that empathy for me. So there's a law that says, okay, you're not going to have empathy. Just don't kill the guy. Right. Right? And here's how, prescriptively, you don't kill that guy. Give at least three feet, and if he's in the same lane, go to the other lane. Right. Which is, Pre- Yeah. Which is generally helpful, but completely fallible. Yeah. And fails all the time. Because it assumes, one, that the person's read that law. Right. And two, that the person cares. Right. Uh, <clears throat> yes. And that, and that, you know, three, something freakish just doesn't happen. Right. Um, and that the law was actually written correctly and, and can take into account um, that that will actually protect somebody. But it still goes back to the idea of why we need these laws. Because right. if you do, if you take those laws away, you're just depending on that goodwill. Right. Right? And so so Which, the, the car driver may be a perfectly wonderful person, you know? Might be might be a, a pastor at the local church or or, you know, a, a Zen Buddhist who's having a bad time in their right. car, right? I mean, any number of things could be happening. And we can't depend on that goodwill. I, th- I think, so I was engaging with this with a podcast I listened to the other day, that uh, the human brain, one of the basic functions of the human brain is actually filtering out information. Oh, yeah. Right. It takes in so much information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and decisions usually have to be made very quickly. And if we actually took into account all of the information that we gather Mm -hmm. to make a decision, we would never make a decision. Information overload. We just could not handle it. Unfortunately, one of the things that our brain filters out is other people. Mm -hmm. And it does that very effectively. And Mm -hmm. there's many situations, someone that really considers themselves a loving, empathetic person, where their brain just kind of subconsciously takes over and filters out somebody else. Right. And and, and back to the bicycle example. there's been lots of studies that um, car drivers see, um, you know, in in that filter program, um, as you're driving along, you see out the windshield, and as things pass, they disappear from your memory. You're right. not you're not saving every telephone pole that goes by, but you don't want to hit that telephone pole, so your subconscious identifies it. It's passed, and it's done and I'm done with that telephone pole and there's no memory that that telephone pole existed but you didn't hit it so some part of your brain recognized it was there and the studies have found that pedestrians and bicycles are telephone poles in that driver's memory so except they're more more uh, tricky than telephone poles but they don't measure them as a more right. tricky than telephone well, I mean, poles, and that's the of, problem. In terms of physically, because they yeah. move and they do unpredictable that, things. Well, right. But in terms but, of value, in terms, yeah. The measurement in the mind is that it's a static thing, right. as if it was a telephone pole. Okay. And the problem is exactly that. It is, A, it's a person, not a telephone pole, and B, it is more tricky because it moves. So, for instance, you're on a bicycle and you're going along at 20 miles an hour and a car's passing you at 30 miles an hour and he wants to make a right turn. 
As soon as he is past you, you're the telephone pole. You're gone. You are not remembered. And he makes that right turn. A common way for bicycles to get bicycle riders to get killed is what they call in bicycle training stuff the right hook. Because they, they, they you're right. really still right there. He's only going ten miles an hour faster right. than you, so you're really still. And especially he's going by thirty, and then he puts on his brakes to slow down. You are right there, but in his brain, you're gone. You don't exist anymore. Runs right over you. Yeah. And so you got to be aware of that. But that's so. So yes, you've got you've got all of those issues together that laws can fail for reasons like that. The car driver is not supposed to run you over. He's supposed to recognize you. But he, the brain doesn't do that very well. So then you get into the fallibility of law in exactly what you said is we first. We identify a need for a law. We don't have enough empathy or understanding or whatever. So we create some quantifiable measures that you must obey. You don't have to understand why because you don't have enough empathy to get it. Or maybe you do, but you're not going to or whatever. Um, or you don't have enough technical understanding or whatever the issue is. So we create a law that gives you a prescription to get there. And then you don't know the law or the law does not work with your cognitive resources. Right. And then you have another problem. So uh, now, that's interesting. Okay. We're just talking about the bicycle rider as as a telephone pole, and that's a problem with cognitive resources. So now, what's the difference between that, which really is a subconscious problem, right? right? And when we're talking about stormwater, which is a wildly complex problem, way too complex, the person, once again, does not have the cognitive resources for that because um, they don't have the education or the background or the knowledge or the... And even if they do, they can't actually... They have to use concepts to understand it. They right. can't use actual hard data because it's right. just too big. Right, right. So is there a difference in the issue of the bicycle as the telephone pole, no, not enough cognitive resources there, right. versus the guy on his property who's got a stormwater issue that's too complicated to understand. I don't want to have to hire a consultant to, to do this. Well, you don't have the cognitive resources to do this. So if you want to do something, you're going to have to hire a consultant. Right. Is there, is there a difference? I mean, one's, a, one's perhaps a conscious lack of cognitive resources and the other is a subconscious. That might have a lot. That might affect people quite a bit. That might be the big effect on people. Um, it's just that you could explain to someone the the bicycle telephone thing. Mm-hmm. And they might, if you sat down with them, they might come to a place where, oh, I get what's going on. Mm-hmm. You could sit down with somebody on the stormwater thing and work with them for three days, and they might still not understand what's going on. No. No, I've got... And so the frustration is that much no. greater. Yeah, I've got clients in this business who don't get it. Right. Now, frankly, to tell you the truth, I mean, I'm working on a very complicated project right now that has stormwater on the property that shouldn't have stormwater that has been misidentified as streams by the Department of Fish and Wildlife, and it's stormwater. It shouldn't be there. There's no reason for it to be there except somebody dumped stormwater in the property when they shouldn't have. And... Um, and we're having trouble getting through the logical scientific process with scientists who should know better because it's too complicated for them. Right. Um, and um, that's, that's, in fact, where we are on this, on this project is um, I wrote out all of the science, studied this project. I know amazing detail about the studies. Let's just say that we have around $200,000 of geotechnical and stormwater and basin studies done for this property that definitively proves our case. And we have 
people on our team, engineers and um, ecologists on our team, who look at the data that scientifically definitively proves our case, and they go, yeah, but that's not what it looks like, so I don't believe it. Right. I don't care what it looks. It looks this way because of these all this stuff. It looks like a stream to me. Right. Yep. It's not. Then why is there water coming out of that pipe? It's a stormwater pipe. Yeah, but it's summertime. There shouldn't be water coming out. I mean, I'm having this conversation with a biologist who works for my client. And, and, the, and the hydrologist goes and looks at the pipe and he says, that's less than what you would get out of a, a garden hose. It's, it's less than two and a half gallons a minute. You get more than that out of garden hose. And, and it, it's just background data. I mean, it's background. You get that much groundwater in a large stormwater system. It's a large stormwater system. It's background. It, it, it doesn't count. It's statistically irrelevant. And the biologist should know better, says, no, but it's water. Right. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He doesn't say no, but it's water. But this is, he's coming to this conclusion. Which is the danger mm-hmm. of contrasting fields. Right. Because one person has their set of rules. And the other person has their set of rules. Right. And they, you would think that, and logically they do mesh if you work on it long enough. Right. But assuming that someone is going to figure out that logic. Well, we have figured out the logic on this and right. shown how it meshes. Right. It, and, well, I think and that you could, that you can communicate that logic. That's the problem, in a way is, that they is communicating that. Um, and and yeah, because you have a problem in fields because the the data that that solves this equation, as it were, is geomorphology and hydrology, and the data that the that the stream biologist typically works with is not that data set. Even though that data set is something he needs to know for his field, it's not usually the defining characteristic, which it is in this case. So he wants to dismiss that because it's not usually, and you know, I could go into more detail on YouTube. The point is that, as you just said, um, you could work with somebody for three days and they still won't get it. Speaking of a an uneducated landowner, I've been working with these guys for a year and they're experts right. and they don't get it. You know, I've got half my team still doesn't get it. The lawyer gets it, the hydrologist gets it, and the geomorphologist gets it. Everybody else doesn't. And the 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 biologist does not get it. And I got to get him to convince the municipal biologist. Right. <laughs> and 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 that it gets to that level of complexity. And unfortunately, so stormwater is one thing, but when it gets to much more serious issues like say vaccinations. Yeah. Uh, that Generally can be, you know, for fifth graders, you know, generally explain what's going on. But honestly, really is a very complicated issue. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not quite as black and white as people think it is. And there is a whole lot of interesting science that not everybody actually understands. Mm -hmm. That would be really helpful um, if everybody understood, Uh, you know, the difference between a flu shot and a polio shot. And that, that comes up quite often in these big discussions. Um, you know, some people says the government should be able to tell you to take whatever shot they want, including a flu shot that may or may not be, you know, maybe only 25% effective statistically. Um, and then the other side uses it to say, but yes, yeah, the government's trying, trying to force these things on us that cannot be proven to be, you know, 100% effective. So why, why should I bother? And that's, and, you know, and then people start legitimately dying. My daughter got whooping cough. Because she was exposed to a number of children that were not uh, that were not vaccinated for that, and it legitimately put her life in jeopardy uh, because it's a 
pretty darn complicated issue full of all kinds of background beliefs. Right. The logic, something that you and I had just uh, discussed before we started recording, is the idea that logic and rationality is really a very poor weapon against other people's beliefs. Right. Um, uh, you can give them very, very sound, very well thought out logic and walk them all the way through the process. But if they don't want to believe it, it doesn't do anything. It just bounces off. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, you, you shared an article not so long ago um, that found a study that found uh, a, with a control group, seemed like a good study, mm-hmm. where um, people were presented with ideas and let's say they say, okay, I believe this at a level 6 out of 10. Right. 10 being I really believe it and 0 being I don't believe it at all. I believe it at maybe a 6. So, you know, pretty pretty solid, but... You know, maybe I can be convinced otherwise. Present them with information that disputes that, and then say, "How do you believe it?" And they say, "Oh, I'm an eight or a nine. Right. And it, uh, what? But but you uh, that oh, especially they said when it came make to the sense. when it came to the myths versus facts, which was right. fascinating. So if you present them with some documentation that says, "Here are the myths that are commonly said about this topic, mm-hmm. and here are the facts," their brain is more likely to remember the myths than the facts, and that actually pushes them. To believe the myths stronger right. and completely ignore the facts. So right. if you present data to someone in a myth versus facts format, there's a chance you will actually reinforce their beliefs stronger, which right. is crazy. Yes. But but it's just a basic it's, human thing. Right. It's just how our brains work. Right. Yeah. So where was I going with that? <laughs> um, <laughs> well... Okay, wait. Oh, so, um, so yeah, so so people are going to believe what they believe. That's where I was going with that. They're going to believe what they're going to believe, and reason is not a good way to present it. Presenting things in a way that speaks to their worldview, to their structural idea of how the world actually works, their subconscious structure of how the world works, is important. And in fact, in you know, in the stormwater issues, we we talk about that. Um, there are very strong beliefs that are that are to a large degree the the end result is right um um puget sound is really dirty and it's been getting dirtier over the last 40 years measuring it and it's it's a mess and protecting the puget sound is important from a natural resource standpoint from a fishery standpoint from an economy standpoint people want to live around the puget sound because it's a beautiful place so you know economic development you could look at it from the conservative point of view of economic development from the liberal point of view of pristine environment um it in in all respects i think most people can agree that making a dead puget sound is a bad idea and yet we get entrenched with ideas of what that means to keep it clean that aren't based in science. Right. They're based in, uh, I want to see bald eagles flying around my, my property. or How you grew up. Um, Nostalgia is just a right. huge one for most people. This is, how, this is how things were when I was a kid. Uh, and, right. and, I, and I want to do everything I possibly can to return to that place, despite the fact that that world is dead and gone. Yeah, and, right. So... So, you, yeah, so you have that when you're talking about land development. You have, uh, I mean, definitely you have communities coming in and saying, um, 
totally contradictory things. You have communities coming in saying, I believe in the Growth Management Act. We need to not push development out in the pristine areas. We need to develop within the urban boundaries. Okay, so we got studies that say we have to do that. And they say we have to get to 12 dwellings per acre, the most average within any given area, the like within a city limit. The average in the 2010 census 2010 census for the city of Seattle, this region's most dense city, was 3.8 units per acre. The least dense city in the United States yeah, was the city of Seattle. Right. The, and you present that to people and you say, no, what about Green Lake? Yeah, Green Lake makes about um, 4.1. Right. No, it's Green terrible. Lake is so dense, though. It's terrible still. No, no, it's not. It's not. And what's Gr- LA is, even LA is like five. No, 2010 census. I, I reviewed all of okay, this okay, because okay. I was really curious and I wrote a little thing about it. So, um, 2010 census, LA was 6.8. Right. So, yeah. so twice. Yeah. Twice the density. Almost, almost twice. Yeah, yeah, we were 3.8. So, right. yeah, almost twice the density in the city of LA. The, the, the well known land of urban sprawl, low density was that much better than the city of Seattle. And and the thing about the city of Seattle is, is that's our most dense city. Right. Everybody else is less. Right. In some cases, a lot less. I mean, Marysville is like 1.2 or something. Right. You know, 1.2 doesn't even make suburban. I mean, that's almost rural. Rural, yeah. You know, and and, and so you have these people who say. I'm a liberal environmentalist, and I understand we have to have density in the city, so I want to do that. So let's pass this tree protection ordinance that reduces density, and let's make the buffers on these dead ditches that we're calling streams bigger so that we can um, reduce density. And going in, and when a jurisdiction like Edmonds says, okay, you know what, we need to increase density, and so we need to make our height limits in the downtown core three feet tall. That's all. Three feet taller. People lost their mind Council members lost their seats for even presenting the idea. And their argument was, we need to be like 1947. Because that was the age at which the oldest people in their group could remember, right. was 1947. And there was a guy, an old guy, who came out. I was at one of the, one of the hearings on this. He came up to testify. And, and he says... Yeah, people are talking about 1947. They've got pictures of that, and and uh, and I'm wondering why 1947. Why not 1920? Right. Why not 1912? Why not 1980? Why not why not 2015? Hey, you know what? 1947 doesn't make any sense at all. Right. In fact, we should probably be looking towards the future because we're talking about a planning document for the planning department. Maybe we ought to plan for the future, not for the past. I'm sitting here, the beginning of his presentation, I thought he was going to say something totally different from what right. he said. So, yeah, nice job. Anyway, but... Um, but this is all a roundabout thing, talking about how our brains work and nostalgia. And, and, and so that comes back to your thing about vaccines. So if you don't know the difference between what the vaccines do, then you can't write the law that says how to do it. And, right. and nobody understands how that works. No, that's not true. The public Few health people. departments do. Right. Um, the public health advocates actually understand how this works. It's not so complicated like some of our stormwater issues where it seems nobody actually understands. This actually is well understood by a few um, epidemiologists and people who, who get this. But within the general debate, within the general 
population. I think you're right. I think it's too nuanced. But let's just say it wasn't nuanced and it was black and white. Right. And and you could say, if I pass a law that says everybody's got to get vaccinations, then I am going to reduce the incidence of children dying from polio, from whooping cough, from tuberculosis, tuberculosis from blah, 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 various go down the line of these diseases that you can, um, the, that are readily preventable that kids used to die of. And, you know, just to make clear that point, um, if there was a family name, sometimes you would name more than one kid with that family name because right. the odds of all of those kids making it to adulthood was that right. slim. And we don't see that anymore. So on the one hand, we have good scientific evidence that says herd immunity. Some people will not be able to get the vaccination. It's not going to work for some people, but it's going to work for enough people that we're going to get rid of it. Right. You know, smallpox is essentially eradicated right. because of that very reason. Um, and and so, so good information, people can't remember that information. But let's even say they could remember that information, right? right? Let's say that that argument played Right? That it wasn't that nuanced that we could just say that and that that argument played and we're done with that, right? But here's the real nuance. Where does liberty come in? Right. Right? Do I have the right? This is my body. Right. To- this is my body. I'm, I'm over 50 and I don't want a colonoscopy and nobody's going to make me get one. Right. And I have that right. And then even you more know? complicated when it's your children's bodies. Right. <laughs> and and um, I don't want anybody poking around in my kid's right. body. Right, you know, it's the, and, the real fine line between protecting them and hurting them, and and it's a very fuzzy line at that. Right, and yeah, it's, and they definitely have points. Like you can't just say you're an idiot and you're wrong. Uh, there is definitely well, sometimes you can say they're an right. idiot, they're wrong. If we're talking about the, dip, the the argument between between liberty and and social welfare. That is a hard argument. Right. We are a country that is founded on individual liberty. Right. But you don't succeed as a country if you don't protect the social welfare. So, you know, these arguments go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and sometimes they decide on individual liberty, and sometimes they decide on social welfare. You know, freedom of speech, that's my individual liberty. But the Supreme Court has said, I can't stand up in a crowded theater and yell fire when there isn't a fire, you know, because that's dangerous. And that... that is is a hazard to the social liberty or the social to the social welfare but they're weighing against it what is my loss in individual liberty with that my loss of individual liberties i don't get to be a jerk right you know it's and back and to the back to that i can swing my fist as much as i want as long and, as i don't hit your nose and and in that case i'm hitting somebody's nose right. i'm maybe hitting a lot of people's noses right. you know people get trampled to death in those cases you know right. and so um so but that's still a fine line because if i want to be a nut and go grab a soapbox and go stand out in front of westlake plaza and tell the world whatever story i want to tell the world i have a right to do that right. and and there are lots, lots of cases, some that we discussed before we turned the microphone on, in fact, current cases, past cases, where somebody sees a reality and everybody else says, you're insane. And it turned out everybody else was wrong and that guy was right. Galileo. It's a good one. Galileo. Um, 
the guy who um, figured out that the subduction fault off the coast couldn't break all at once and create a, a greater than nine um, Richter scale earthquake. All of his colleagues said, you're wrong. Faults don't work that way because they'd only really study in depth the San Andreas Fault because it moves enough that it's like the prize thing to go study because you can study it. It does a lot of stuff, right? And that's how that one behaves. And so every fault we've studied, every one fault we've studied, you know, works this way. And, um, And it turns out that the one off the coast here sometimes works differently from how they thought it worked. And and this guy said so, and wanted he published a paper, and all of his peers reviewed the paper and said, "You're nuts." And then it was confirmed that he wasn't nuts; that he was right. His data was fine and it was accurate. And then more data and more data and the, and the problem with that is, for every one of those, there's five that were nuts. Yeah, right. That were totally more wrong. than five, maybe a yeah. hundred. Right, that were just you know? absolutely wrong, and their theories were totally. Yeah, how bankrupt. many times has somebody um, publicly, in a way that many other people knew ha- it happened, has said that I went and I read all of the codes in the Bible, and there's so many codes right. in there. I added it up, and I figured out that the that Armageddon is going to happen on this date. Right. How many times has that happened? A lot. Right. And how many times have they been right? Never. None. <laughs> so you far, know? yes. Yeah, so far. <laughs> you know, well, you know, if, 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 if a nut picks every day, right. one of the nuts is going to be right, right, right? That's right. <laughs> you know, um, assuming that it happens, right? right. But, but um, that's, uh, that, that's, that's the truth. But that's why it's so difficult to decide what should be protected speech and what shouldn't be protected speech. Because what protected speech is really, really important for us to hear right now. You know, and and that's why the ACLU has has fought and defended reprehensible groups like the KKK and Nazi groups and people. You know, a Nazi group wanted to go march through a Jewish neighborhood in Chicago. That's a horrible thing to do. And the city wouldn't issue a permit to do it. And the ACLU sued and won on behalf of the Nazi group. Not because the ACLU admired the Nazi group, right. but because they protect civil liberties. Right. If this they can is do a, it, if they can't do it, that means nobody can do it. Right. And what does that do to our country? Right. 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 And so, so when that... That Nazi group is swinging their fists. They are hitting somebody's nose. There's right. no question in right. that case. And yet, they have that right to, to free speech. That's that liberty thing, right? So where do I get to make a law that infringes on my liberty? And pretty much every law infringes on our liberty yes. in some that's, way. That's kind of the definition of the law. <laughs> right, right. right. I'm going to tell you, you, you have to do something. You cannot do something that you want to do. Right, yeah. right. So... So why is that okay? And where do you draw that line? Yeah. You know, and, and Which is why it's so important for people to be able to step away from some of their dualistic thinking and live in a world of nuance. Yeah. Where where there's this book that uh, I've been working through called The Sin of Certainty and talking about especially <laughs> right. conservative Christianity. Mm-hmm. Just you know, there's such a strong desire to live in this black and white world. Um, that they force things to be black and white that are not black and white. And this is a great example of it. If they treat laws like they're black and white, um, terrible, horrible abuses happen. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because they can't handle the nuance of that is required to handle these type of uh, things well, like law. Okay, so 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 let's look at that. Um, I was thinking a lot about this issue um, a year or so ago. Somebody, there's a there was a, um, a picture going around Facebook. Um, somebody was in a car crash, and they were alone in the car. Um, probably fell asleep or something, and they crashed in such a way that um, it dislodged the um, the guardrail on the side of the road um, and ran the guardrail up the hood of the car and right through the windshield and, in fact, through the driver's chair. Right. Should have taken the driver's head off, but the driver somehow got thrown to the side just as the guardrail was going through the car at 70 miles an hour and the driver opened the door and walked out. And and what people were posting with this photo that was going around was how the good Lord protected this guy. Mm -hmm. And I thought, why the good Lord caused the crash? If the good Lord was protecting him, why did the good Lord cause the crash? And... um, and so what I started thinking about is this element that has actually been studied to some degree in, related, in relation to gambling addictions, which is that the human brain is programmed for patterns. Mm-hmm. We don't do random well. Right. And that car crash and the survival of that person was random. Right. It's something that happened. And, and, and it will happen again statistically. Right. Um, uh Okay, and the thing that came through my head right there was the um, improbability machine in the um, in the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide right. to the Galaxy. Right. Um, <laughs> yes, everything, everything has a, some probability. Right. right? Yes. There's no such thing as um, impossible. Just improbable. <laughs> yes, and how exactly improbable is it? And that that accident happening in a way that dislodged a guardrail that is designed to not be dislodged, that ran it through that particular part of the car and at the same time did not kill the driver. That goes pretty far out in the the decimal points of improbability. But yet it happened. So we don't deal with randomness very well. And we deal with patterns. I mean, where this was studied in, in gambling addictions is the reason people have gambling addictions is their brains are desperately trying to create the pattern where none exists. Right. I mean, if the, the, the whole point of a, of a slot machine is it's randomness. And yet the brain needs that pattern and tries to find that pattern. And so we create structures. And sometimes those structures are black and white kind of uh, looks at at um, how religion works. Uh, they're black and white looks at how law works, things like that. It creates a pattern that tells me that the world is functioning within a pattern that I can deal with. And so the studies in gambling addictions have found that some people's brains deal with randomness better than other people's brains. Some people can look at the slot machine and say, Oh, that's random. Right. Screw this. I'm walking away. Right. And other people's brains can't do that. They just I saw a pattern. It was there. I saw. It. Right. I know what it is. This right. time, I know what it is. Right. And so, so when we start looking at the the black and white thinking that you're talking about in in the evangelical community and conservative Christianity, um, how much of that is okay? This is a 
this is an unprovable question, so there, right. there isn't an answer. But how much of that is that worldview that the professor I was mentioning at um, University of California, Berkeley, whose name is escaping me right now, um, is talking about that, that, that subconscious structural in the brain worldview that we don't even know we're walking around with, right? There's that. And then there's this thing in some people's brains that you got to find a pattern where there isn't one. What if you put those two things together? What if you put a person who has that view together with a hierarchical God first, father second, mother next, you know, the, that hierarchical worldview of how you see, you know, um, the hierarchy of humans, which is very common in that um, um, conservative Christian evangelical community. Um, what if you put those two things together, you know? What if what if it's that? And I think so the the nuance in this is it's very easy to assume that the ability to see a pattern that isn't there is always negative. Wait, say that again. That the ability too many double negatives in there. The ability to see a pattern that does not exist. Mm-hmm. So the belief the ability to believe in something as a pattern that is not a pattern Mm -hmm. is always bad and I think or or maybe just not provable as a pattern Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know that I think that can do incredible damage to people but I also think that's an ability that the human brain has that can let people get through incredibly difficult things sometimes so there's a book that I'm reading now called um, Man's Search for Meaning which is uh, written by a Jewish psychoanalyst who was in Auschwitz and, and uh, a couple other uh, concentration camps and managed to live. Uh, and his uh, premise, t- getting towards the end of the book, is that um, from a psycho, psychotherapy sense of, of human health, uh, he found it incredibly important for people to have meaning for the difficult things that happened to them. Sure. Even if that meaning, that. even if that meaning was totally bullshit, right? I uh, it that. was still helpful, mm-hmm. and it doesn't even matter if it really is bullshit or not. Mm-hmm. Like it could actually be true; they just can't prove it, and nobody can prove it. Right? It doesn't matter; it's still helpful, mm-hmm. and that is where. So, like, like in this group in punk theology, uh, we engage that quite a bit, and that okay. Because um, we did, we segregate between demonstrable truths and and predictive or so predictive truths and explanatory truths. So something that has explanatory power would be like Freud or Marx, where there's a complete system that explains everything. So you can take any past event and assign it motives from Marxism or Freud, uh, and it makes sense and it works. However, those systems cannot make predictive truths. You cannot take that system and say, this is what's going to happen with this mm-hmm. person, which is where uh, psychothera- or psychoanalysis, right? Basically, uh, was it Anne Freud taking her father's stuff and trying to use those theories to fix people and totally fucking them up, just completely ruining them. Um, so, so that would be an example of something that has explanatory power, but not demonstrative power. And the way that you know it doesn't have demonstrative power 
or predictive power is it's not falsifiable. Mm-hmm. And that there's nothing in that system that you can point to and logically pin down as being able to make false. Right. So, so and actually, uh, this is incredibly important for science uh, and something mm-hmm. that not everybody gets is that when you make a scientific prediction, it must be falsifiable. And actually, the more points at which it can be falsifiable, the more valuable it is. Right. Uh, which is where you get predictive theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, like evolution is a predictive theory in that there are plenty of points within evolution, tons and tons of points within evolution that are falsifiable. So explain for a minute what you mean by falsifiable. You can... So, so if someone says... Gravity does not exist. Mm-hmm. You can, you can. It is falsifiable because you can pick up a bowling ball and drop it. Mm-hmm. You know, say someone says gravity is not going to affect that bowling ball right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, gravity is not a constant. When you drop that ball, it's not going to fall to the floor. Right. You right. pick it up, you drop it, it falls to the floor. That prediction that that person mm-hmm. made was falsifiable, easily falsifiable, mm-hmm. because all you have to do is demonstrate something contrary to what it's predicting. Mm -hmm. So that would be falsifiable. So Mm -hmm. in science, the more falsifiable it is, the more things that you can do to prove that it's wrong, Mm -hmm. the more valuable it is, the more power that theory has, and and it gets more and more and more powerful as the things that are falsifiable that it comes up against, it passes over and over and Mm -hmm. over again. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, um, uh, let's see, what's a good example of a... Well, I mean, we'll stick with gravity, right? Mm-hmm. Like every encounter we've ever had with gravity, uh, seem uh, until we get down to some of the instances of quantum physics and that mm-hmm. type of thing. Mm-hmm. But in this physical world that we encounter, that ninety nine point nine percent of us will ever engage with, mm-hmm. um, uh, it withstands the rigor of every falsifiable mm-hmm. um, test. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by falsifiable. And there's a difference between things that are, and so a demonstrative theory or predictive theory is falsifiable. And, and you're, you're giving one where somebody comes up with a theory against it, but it's also could be done. Direction. It works the other direction. Right. I, right. And that's, those are most viable I, I believe too. I believe that every time I drop this ball, it's going to hit the ground and right. it's going to go at this rate of speed. Bam. And that is also it. falsifiable Bam, because the time that it happens that you drop it and it doesn't do that, mm-hmm. uh, oh wow, that something happened. That, mm-hmm. that was, turns out that was falsifiable. That's not a uh, that's no longer a predictive truth. Mm-hmm. That something happened that broke right. that predictive right. truth. It is right. no longer a whole. So by falsifiable, you're just saying you can put this theory up against a test. I right. have a I have a concrete thing that I can test and retest. Right, and right. things like Marxism, right. Freudism, can't do that. Religion, right, do not have any points at which they are falsifiable, which is attractive to many people. Right. Because it puts them in a position of power, because no one can ever argue with them. So this, so this gets to Bertrand Russell's teapot, right? Right. You know the teapot, uh-huh. right? Okay. Is everybody you, else listening? Yeah. To the why, teapot? why don't you do the teapot? <laughs> the teapot basically is that um, I'm hypothesizing and and saying as a as a truth that there is a teapot orbiting the sun somewhere out beyond Mars. Right. And and there it is. And that's not falsifiable because nobody could ever find it. We just don't have the equipment. Yeah. Theoretically, someday equipment could be created that could scan the entire solar system at a a level of uh, the size of a teapot. But for equipment to be able to do that, we don't even know how we would make equipment that would do that today. It's 
would be impossible to find. And um, so uh, Bertrand Russell uh, said that as an axiom of something that um, places the burden of proof on the person presenting the hypothesis. So um, he w- he said this as a contrast to the religious argument that says religion is true because nobody's ever proven God wrong. Right. You can't prove God wrong. Right. It's, it's not, not a falsifiable right. argument. Right. Yeah. Yes. So that's and and so then so so now we've segregated those two things. Right. There's things that are falsifiable and things that are not falsifiable. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there are predictive theories and then just just theories that that cannot predict anything. They can only explain. And part of the problem that we have in places like Facebook is people do not understand the difference between those two things. No. And so some people are trying to argue from the perspective of you, like, why won't you engage me in demonstrable theories? And the other people are saying, why won't you engage me as explanatory theories? And those two things will never mesh, but people right. are trying to force them to mesh. And they don't understand that they don't even consciously understand the differences between those two. They think right. one is the other and the other is is that the thing they think they're both the same thing mm-hmm. um, so we need to segregate those two first and foremost we can mm-hmm. give our vocabulary right so we can actually talk about this concept so now we have the vocabulary at least closer to where we both understand it the question becomes uh, demonstrable truths are incredibly valuable in a day to day lives mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah just pretty much everything that we do everything we encounter with from a pragmatic practical rational standpoint uh, demonstrable truths are valuable. Are explanatory truths valuable? And some people say no. And some some people say absolutely not. Some people say yes a few. Some people say about well, 50-50. And some people say I only choose to live in a world of explanatory truths. Yeah, so, um, so when we're talking about um, explanatory truths providing meaning right. and that being valuable for people... Um, Richard Dawkins argues that that is a, a malfunction of an, an area of the brain. Okay. And um, that he argues that um, our feeling of love for an abstract God is also, that all of this is a malfunction of, the, of elements of the brain that we have evolved to, um, to for instance, um, love is a very important thing that binds our tribes and we've evolved for that important emotion to bind our tribes whereas you, you probably animals with a similar evolutionary path but but became solitary like mountain lions and something like that um, probably don't feel love in the same way that we would whereas perhaps dogs and chimpanzees which have evolved to depend on other individuals, maybe do feel that, right? So anyway, these then, are... These, but the problem with that, I would say, is that in itself is only explanatory. Because that does not have predictive power. It's a theory. Yeah. But, it, but it, you know, it's an explanatory uh, theory to try and discredit another explanatory theory. I, that's, I think that's true. Um, he is an evolutionary biologist who is an atheist. Right. Um, and I think that that's the problem with arguing about religion is you can't get there. You know, right. you, There's you, nothing to argue with. Right. So you... So, so, 
So, um, which is what we encounter a lot in our in our group is. But, but okay. I wasn't done. Okay, go I ahead. wasn't done. Go ahead. Um, so to to back up in that malfunction of the brain that he's arguing about with the um, the need for. Um, uh, what, what did you say? Not explanation, but um, meaning Protective. for when things happen. Okay, no, right. Meaning for meaning when yes. things happen. Um, that we, as as a biological entity, have a need for usefulness within the tribe. We have a need for um, explanations for um, why the avalanche wiped out that village but didn't wipe out this village so that we don't go build a village below the avalanche next right. time and and that and that there's a need a need for reasoned meaning that then gets misplaced with unreasoned meaning right so for instance i crashed my bike and i broke my hip and i was very uncomfortable with um it, it seemed like a completely random act to me. People said, it's because you rode in the rain. And I said, okay, I've been riding my bike for 40 years, for you know, 5,000 miles a year average for 40 years. And, um, and 28 of those years have been in the Seattle area. You know, I can, I can work out mathematically how many miles I've ridden in the rain. And let's just say it's a really big number. And saying that I crashed in the rain when... I haven't crashed because of the rain before is that's not a reasoned solution, right? So people gave me all of these reasons why they thought it happened. Which is very important and, to humans. It was, it was, every conversation you have about something tragic that happened, the impulse of a human is to assign meaning. Assign meaning, meaning. right there. Instantly. Right, assign me instantly. Yes. And I'm a rational guy, and I'm listening and saying, well, that's crap. Right. And, well, that one's crap, too. No. Ah. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, one of the things that came up is bicycle riding is just inherently really dangerous and you should give it up. Right. Okay. Statistical data shows that it's safer than being in my car. The statistics tell me that, and most people don't believe this, but the data exists. The most dangerous part of my ride is driving to the start line. Right. And, um, and no, no, car driving is safe. Okay. The reason we think car driving is safe is because we all do it and we have to put that right. in a safe place in our brain. Right. And I'm not going to go into that. That's not the point of this. The point of this is... I didn't feel comfortable with this until not I had assigned meaning to it, but I had found out why. I went back to the spot of the accident on a rainy day with my bike, and I found out that there was a piece of concrete that had been placed at an angle and was smoother than it should have been and was as slick as ice when it got wet. And so when my front wheel got on it, because it was an angle, my front wheel went out from under me and I crashed. That's why it happened. When I knew that's why it happened, I was much better with things. Right. And, and so that was not assigning meaning from the standpoint of, of God had a plan for me or um, there, was a, there was a meaning in that that meaning is that I should be an inspiration for hip replacement people or n no, nothing abstract. It was why did this happen? How can I avoid it in the future? Here's how it happened. Not sure I can avoid that. It's pretty random. Probably isn't going to happen again. I'm okay. The trick is when you're in situations where there's just too many variables to ever be able to identify. Right. And that, I mean, very common occurrence. And so, the, yeah, again, so it comes common. down to a nuance of can you pursue a demonstrative reason? And, allow, and do not settle. Do not choose to just settle um, 
for an explanatory reason um, uh, completely. So pushing towards a demonstrable reason, but also realizing that in many situations that's never going to happen. You won't have peace with the situation if you obsess over finding the demonstrable reason. Right. Because in some places you just can't, it will not appear. So, if, you know, I've been through that as well, um, where there's just nothing I can do to come up with the answer. And where I've been with that is to go through the process that I went through with this, this other accident and figure that either this was completely random or had a level of variables to make this such a statistical improbability that I'm okay with it. Right. And I can I can walk away from it. Right. I don't need to assign any deeper meaning. I don't need an existential solution to it. Um, and uh, I, I have I've wrapped it up and put it in a safe place in my brain by doing the rational thing and saying this my village didn't get buried because of the landslide that happened because I was stupid. It just was a random, unfortunate thing. There's nothing I can do about it or something. You know, I mean, what would a, what would a tribe do that got its village buried by a lahar, you know, a volcanic eruption, right? Because there's no way they can come up with a solution to that. Right. You know, I mean, this is, there's no way there, even when you have the data for it, you know, we've got, uh, I can think of four towns in our um, greater Puget Sound area, uh, five, okay, I'm increasing, that are in Lahar zones. Right. Um, might just instantly disappear. Um, that might instantly disappear, and they've got lots of people living in them, and those people have been informed that that's where you live. What's the chance of... Glacier Peak bearing Darrington or or um, or Mount Rainier bearing Ording or Enumclaw or Buckley right. um, or Mount Baker bearing Glacier or you know right right it, the odds are very very low that's going to happen anyway so until they happen and then they're very high yeah this then, is you, the unfortunate then, thing then you've got Harry Truman who's you know six hundred feet underground over in Mount St Helens so that's anyway. Um, yeah, so, and and so, and then ultimately, it really comes down to, because even, even logic and rationality at some point fails us. Um, and, 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 um, and so even, even with that, because that's part of the appeal of, of logic and rationality, is that as it, it it can keep us safe? It can help us predict. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it uh, it provides consistency. Uh, you know, it, in many ways, it's 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 just a version of what people get from God. Uh, their concept of God, uh, it's just more predictable. Um, but even that ultimately fails, um, and can fail people, and will fail people. Um, so, and I think. And then some people just won't operate that way. Mm-hmm. I don't if it's either physiological or by choice or by culture or by when they were born and what talents they were given. Um, and we cannot choose. I, don't, I won't say we cannot. We need to be very careful, assuming that we are better than those people. Is where is where I come to and still 
valuing them and not valuing them like in Animal Farm where you're valuable, you're just not as valuable yeah. type, of, type of scenario. And I think that's where the beauty of this group comes in is that we have people that high, value logic and reason very highly and people that value it but not quite as highly and then people that are very much prefer to run emotionally um, and and drive by the seat of their pants, fly by the seat of their pants and just figure things out. And they have value too and they have things that they bring to the table that the rationalists and the logisticians, logisticians mm-hmm. like us don't. Uh, and deeply human things, mm-hmm. right? Because you could argue that a computer would do a better, much better job of rationalization and oh, yeah. logistics than, yeah. than we would. But but the deeply human aspects are the parts that reject that. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we encounter and find peace in our humanity in that um, while still putting a high value on rationality and logic um, is is a tough question, and I think it takes an entire life to figure out. Um, so we need to wrap up, but uh, do you have any closing words, John, or any ideas? Yeah, let's see. So we uh, strayed quite a ways from yeah. the legal thing. That's, that's what we do. Uh, yeah, and so... Um, so... I guess what, how we got down that path that we were just at is the humanity and how people think and how people approach things and what liberty is and, and why we need to have laws and regulations that keep us safe. Um, whether you're rational, logical, um, neither of those, um, knee-jerk, uh, there are things that you would not do that society needs you to do or society will fail. And for those things, we have to have laws. And sometimes we have too many and we have to scale it back a little bit. And sometimes we don't have enough and we need to add some more. And that's where the debate comes in. Um, but... Uh, Anarchy works great if you're a hermit all by yourself. Um, if you've ever lived in a relationship with somebody, you find out pretty quickly anarchy doesn't work anymore. So anarchy with two people fails, basically. Right. right. Um, uh, so just as an aside, I thought it was interesting when we had the anarchists protesting with riots uh, of... Uh, some. I can't remember what the world meeting was that was happening in Seattle... 10 or 15 years ago, but it was a big deal and and the anarchists were out there and um, and the news reporter was out there saying, well, we have the leader of the anarchists here to talk to and he's talking, he, he doesn't see any irony in that at all. Yes, I'm the leader of the anarchists. Well, okay, if you're the leader, I don't think there's anarchists. Right. Um, so, so establishing that anarchy is basically crap. Um, we have to have laws. We have to have some rules and the bigger your society is, the more rules you have to have the closer together your society is the more rules you have to have the higher the density the society is the more rules you have to have and um but they will not guarantee your safety 
No. Nope. They will not guarantee your freedom. No. Nope. And, and sometimes they do the opposite of guaranteeing your freedom. Right. I mean, by, by definition, they impinge upon your freedom. Right. The fact that you're living really, really close to, you know, a million other people affects your freedom. Right. Uh, if you had no laws and everything was was anarchy, then it's going to be mob rule, and that's going to affect your freedom. doesn't matter. Your freedom is affected because you're not a hermit living out in the woods. If you want to have complete freedom, go be a hermit living out in the woods, and then the weather's going to affect you. Yeah, so it's true. You, you, don't get, you don't get that complete freedom and liberty. That's like, a that's Because like finding a, a nice, empty place in the woods anymore. Yeah, talk to uh, Ted Kaczynski about that. Is, that. that is also a, uh, a friendly and happy. A friendly habitat to human... Uh, yeah, right. It doesn't exist. So so that's why we have laws. There's always going to be debate about how it works based on all of that stuff we just talked about. <laughs> so there you go. Thank you, John. Thanks for joining us. That's a huge bitch! Thanks for listening to Punk Theology. Don't forget to subscribe, like to join us in having more ears hear this punk sound. Please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you may hear this fucking podcast. Punk Theology is the property of Digital Audio Project who is responsible for its content. Don't chicken out! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Who's gonna break the system? We're gonna fight the